series last week uh, called Who Needs God? Who Needs God? And it's a bit of a perplexing uh, question, um, and we're doing this right up until Easter Sunday because the reality is that what we tend to think in, in church life is that, well, everybody believes the Easter story, and everybody in here believes that Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus ascended into heaven, and Jesus is coming soon, and of course, everybody in the church believes that, and that's why we're all here, and it's just kind of implied, and it's just kind of accepted, Uh, but the reality is that not everybody who's part of a church or attends a church believes that. Uh, There's a lot of questions about that, even from church people, and a lot of times they're too too uh, shy to admit that or too afraid to ask it, or maybe if they have a question about the whole thing, somebody may say, oh, you're, you're, you're a doubter. Or, but I've discovered that in church life, there's a lot of people with a lot of questions. And some people attend churches for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they like the girls there. Sometimes they like the boys there. Sometimes they like the coffee and the tea. Uh, you know, And they come for all kinds of reasons. So don't assume that everybody just accepts all of this stuff, some of it is really hard to accept. Um, and what we've, what we've been talking about last week is while we realize it or we don't realize it, um, in particular since the 11th of September 2001, there has been a massive shift in culture and uh, the shift in culture has, has produced a backlash against religion. And there are a number of of authors who became very, very prominent um, after uh, 9-11, and their writings have affected the culture at large, whether you realize it or or you don't. Uh, But some of you who have kids in the room, your kids, your grandkids, some of you who are in high school, CJEP University, all of the, the writings of these people have have had a profound effect on North American culture in particular, and Quebec is no stranger to this, and it has produced uh, 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 a kind of um, name for, for a brand of people, if you will, who have walked away from religion and who have said, you know, I'm done with religion and I'm becoming a nun. <laughs> that may sound a little funny to you, becoming a nun and you're done with religion. I'm not talking N-U-N, I'm talking N-O-N-E. And that's where you say to a question, you know, what religion are you? You look for the box that says none, and you check that box. No religious affiliation. Thank you very much. Uh, Was interested in that when I was a child, but said goodbye to that. And don't ask me any questions. Don't ask me if I'm an atheist or an agnostic. I'm just none. Thank you very much. I have no interest in religion. And we talked about uh, some of the authors who have written prolifically uh, about religion in a very negative sense. Um, this is one of them, uh, Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins and the, the God Delusion, very, very famous book, uh, and the late uh, Christopher Hitchens and, um, and God is Not Great. And these men have have written uh, very, very popular books. Their, their podcasts, their videos, uh, they are rock star status. Uh, and so are a couple of other prominent atheists uh, who have written very strongly against religion. And a lot of the culture, especially young people, have agreed with them and have said, you know what, you're right. Religion is poison. 
Religion poisons everything. Religion is the source of all of these problems. Maybe they wouldn't say that so much about Jesus, right? As I said to you, do a little experiment with your friend and say to them, you know, the problems in this world is religion. Religion is the major problem in this world. You will get very little disagreement with that. If you say to the person, the same person, you know what the problem with this world is? The problem in this world is Jesus. He is the problem with this world. He is the cause of all the problems. You may not get too much yes about that. But if you say religion, very few people are going to disagree with you when you say religion is the, is the, you know, the root of all evil. A lot of people will agree with you. They certainly agree with these three authors in particular. And we looked at this one verse of scripture, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, you know, of course, there are, there are surface ways of interpreting this, and we can say, oh, well, you see these atheists, they're fools, and they just, they're unintelligent people. That's not true. Atheists are extremely intelligent. These men are brilliant men. Uh, they are, you should see them debate. They are very, very brilliant men. Uh, it's not that they're unintelligent, and other people would say, well, let's interpret this and say that they're immoral. And the passage itself, Psalm 14, would talk about the morals of the person who says that there's no God. But some atheists are very moral. Not every atheist is immoral. Uh, and so we said, well, how do we, what, what's another way of looking at this passage? And we looked at some of the updated implications of atheism, which these authors have really, really helped us with. And they've helped us to understand, hey, if, if atheism is the worldview that you have, uh, there are implications to this. And uh, they have helped us understand this. We talked about the illusion of you. Uh, that really is actually an illusion if there is no God. Um, and we talked about, uh, you know, for example, a quote from Hitchens who was, who was dying of cancer of the esophagus and wrote a book called Mortality. And uh, toward the end of it, uh, you know, the doctors were saying to him, your body is doing this and your body is doing this and your body is doing this. And he got fed up and he said, he said I do not have a body. Uh, I am a body. That's all I am. I do not have one. I am one. And this is, again, the idea. There really is no you. You're just a collection of mass and matter and body. There is no soul. This is something we invent uh, to get us by. It's something we use as a you know, cultural coping mechanism, perhaps. But it really isn't true. If there is no God, if there's no God, then there's no free will. Uh, and everything is determined by cause and effect. And uh, you don't really have a free will if there is no God, uh, these, these authors would, would argue, and yet they would jest at the same time. Uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, was asked the question, do you believe in free will? And he said, yes, I have no choice. Let, let that sit for a while, okay? That's supposed to be funny and ironic at, at the same time. We talked about the illusion of value. Uh, you cannot establish objective value to anything if there's no God. You can subjectively do it perhaps but you can't objectively do it if there is no god uh if there's no god then something came from nothing we don't know why we don't know how but we know that it did something came from nothing uh first life that was able to reproduce it, it itself uh came from non-life what we call a, a, abiogenesis um, and natural selection is responsible for all life after first life. These are the updated implications of atheism. Uh, however, I don't think that any of you care too much about them. <laughs> and I think that people leave religion and people become nuns and people begin to question their faith, not so much because of these things. 
It's not so much that these things are particularly attractive to people. It's that religion has become unappealing and religion has become unattractive and religion has become annoying and religion has become just useless to people and they say I do not need this anymore I do not want this anymore and I'm walking away from this but they're not real sure what they're walking toward and oftentimes it is because the the perception that they have of God and that they have drawn of God is not of God and that's what I want to talk about today uh, the gods of the no testament Oftentimes, when you talk to people who have walked away from God, walked away from the church, walked away from Christianity, and you try and understand the God that they walked away from, you're left scratching your head thinking, wow, they believed in that about God? I would walk away from that too. I talk to, to unbelieving people all the time where I, where I serve over at the, the, the Mission Nouvelle Génération, and I hear the things that they say about God, and two-thirds of the things that they say about God are completely wrong. Uh, and they're not interested in that God. And I fully understand why. Because a lot of what they've been told or what they've been taught is kind of, wow, you, that's what you really think that God is like? Well, no wonder you're not too interested in God or, or religion. So some are nuns because they give up on a God who they concluded this God does not exist. This God is akin to Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and uh, the little guy who shoots his arrow and makes people fall in love. What's his name? Cupid, Cupid, and they say, you know, there's no difference between this God. And so I want to talk about some of these gods today. Maybe some of you believe in them. Uh, and you believe maybe God is like this. Um, and these are, these are gods that are very difficult to serve. But sometimes we, even in the church, have this impression. Uh, first one, the protective bubble God. And this is the idea that nothing bad will ever happen to me if I'm a Christian. I'm in a protected bubble. So the moment that I become a Christian, and the moment that I get saved, and the moment that I start serving the Lord... Nothing bad will ever happen to me. I'm so glad that there's children in the room to hear this. Okay, this idea that nothing bad will ever happen to a person of faith or to a Christian, this is mythology. I don't know who told you that. I don't know where you learned that. But you do not learn that from the Bible. And you do, you do not learn that from life. You learn that you are not in some kind of protective bubble actually. But perhaps if I really wanted to, I could whip up a really clever sermon. I could take a Psalm 91 or, or Psalm 103. You know, Psalm 91, people, people quote it all the time. The, who, who hides in the shelter of God will be protected from all of these things. And, and they love to quote this passage and little bits and pieces of Psalm 91. They love to quote Psalm 103. Uh, Forget not all his benefits who, who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. Ha, ha, ha. And they, I could whip up a really nice sermon and get you all emotional and get you to say, yeah, 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 God will protect us always. You will not see that in those Psalms. You read those Psalms and you read those Psalms in context and you will not see that. There is no universal promise from God that every believer will be protected from everything for the rest of their life. And they live in this little bubble. But if you believe that, what is going to happen to you when something bad happens? 
Do you know what you'll do? You'll say, there's no God because I was taught that I'm always protected. Uh, I hope you realize that that, that that really isn't true. How does this apply to Easter? Really good example. Remember Jesus. Remember the cross. Remember that he wasn't in a protected bubble. Remember how Jesus came into the world at, at what we celebrate at Christmas time. Remember how he was on the run, even as an infant, r- running for his life from someone who wanted to take his life. Uh, he wasn't in a protected bubble. Do we expect to live in a protected bubble? If we do, that's mythology. That God is not real. It's not about, well, is God going to protect me? It's, is God going to be with me? Will he be with me even in times of trouble? Not will he protect me. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to single out, but, but I, need, I just need to tell you, um, we have an example in, in the life of Simon and Alicia. Let me tell you something. Y- you need to talk to this man because there is something under the hood in his heart that is a real, genuine faith that is an unshakable faith that is not based on the circumstances, whatever they may be. There's something there, and that something is, is contagious, and it was contagious with his wife as well. That's the kind of faith you want, my friends. It's not life in a protected bubble. Young people, listen to me. Kids, listen to me. Difficulty will come in life. It is not whether or not God will protect me. It's what will I do when it happens? How will I react when it happens? Will I say goodbye to God or will my faith actually grow as a result? So don't believe in the myth of the protective bubble God. Uh, Close relative to the uh, protective bubble God is the on-demand God. Any of you have an iPhone? It's okay, you can raise your hand. I still have a Blackberry. <laughs> it's dying a rapid, a very rapid death, mind you. Um, but but uh, you know, I, I shouldn't use that language, but you know what I mean. It's, 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 it's not doing well, my Blackberry. Uh, but you know that on an iPhone, you have this, uh, this creature, what's her name? Siri, right? And all you have to do is hail Siri. Do you even have to press a button anymore or do you just say, hey, Siri, and she like, she knows who she is? Okay, so all you have to do is say, hey, Siri, do this for me. Look this up for me. Do this math equation for me. Tell me where the nearest pizza joint is. Tell me where this place is. Like, Siri, just, and what are we doing? We're making a demand of a, of a piece of electronics um, you know, wonderful toy. But can I just tell you, like, God is not on demand. He's not on your demand. He's not Siri. Um, and sometimes we, we, I could stand here and I could whip up a really good sermon. I could take a passage like First John chapter 5, if you pray according to his will, he hears you. And if he hears you, you will, you, you, your, your prayer will be answered. I could whip up a really, really good sermon and tell you, hey, there's a formula. There's a way that you can pray and you can get whatever you want as long as you're praying in his will. 
And obviously, it must be his will that everything good happens to you all the time because, after all, you're in a protected bubble, right? So, so the two are closely related, the protective bubble God and the on-demand God. And I could really do that. I could really whip up a really nice sermon, make you feel really good and all emotional and everything. Oh, yes, praise God. And then you'll pray for something, and you'll get no answer. You'll get no answer or at least seem like no answer to you. And you say, I don't get it. I prayed. I even quoted scripture back to God when I prayed. I mean, I even proved to God that I know a little bit of the Bible. (laughs) And I quoted back a scripture. Hey, I even found something in the Old Testament. And while I was praying, I quoted an Old Testament verse back to God from Leviticus even. Well, he must answer me then. Or I pulled something from the Psalms and I thought it was a pretty cool prayer. I thought like there's no way God could say no to that prayer. There's no way God could not answer or apparently not answer. There's just no way. I mean, he's obligated because isn't there there a formula? No, there's no formula. And I hope you've discovered that there's no formula. Do you know why there's no formula? Because God is not at your demand. Do you know how this relates to Easter? What did Jesus do when he's facing the cross? He, in agony, he prays to his father and he says, if there's another way, if there's another way, take this cup, really the cup of wrath, take this cup from me if there's another way, yet not my will, but yours be done. There's no record of an answer. There's no voice from heaven. There's, apparently, he just acquiesces to the will of the Father. It's apparently, seems like God didn't even answer. We don't know. Maybe he did in his mind. I don't know, but there's no record of it in the Gospels. Oh, it's okay, my son. It's going to be okay. No, no record of that. Lord, take this cup from me. It's no on-demand. If you, if you have created or believed in an on-demand God, the moment that you pray and he doesn't answer, or it seems like he doesn't answer, or the moment that you get a no from your demand, what are you going to do? You're going to say, this God, this God is not real. This God is Cupid. This God is Santa Claus. This God is mythology, and you're going to walk away, but I could whip up a really nice sermon and make you feel good and tell you, oh, yeah, there's a formula, but there isn't. How about the boyfriend-girlfriend God? Remember when you were a teenager and you had your first crush? Remember, you just always wanted to be with the person. You were on the phone, and you stayed on the phone for hours. Or maybe you got older, and you, you, know, you fell in love, or you're in love with someone now, and you just, you're on the phone for hours with them, like time stands still. And it's like you just feel them all the time. You, just, you have this sense of this, it, like you literally, you physically feel something when you think about them, when you talk about them, when you dream about them, and it's your, it's your boyfriend, it's your girlfriend, it's your fiance, it's whatever. You know what happens when you get older? You don't feel anything anymore. <laughs> How many of you know that? After a while, the feeling's going like this, and it's sort of ho-hum. I woke up, it's the same person next to me. He's a little older. She's a little older, and I don't feel anything anymore, and I don't think she does either. Oh, what are we going to do? Does it mean that you're not married anymore? No. It just means means your feelings, they come and they go. And we have this whole thing about God. Well, you know, 
I, I just want to feel God's presence all the time. Oh, my word. You want, I mean, sometimes I don't even feel like a Christian, and I'm the preacher. Okay, it, 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 this, you better get beyond your feelings. Feelings are good and feelings are powerful. Yes, indeed they are. And God gave us feelings and God gave us emotions and he gave us all these things. And hey, I could whip up a little sermon for you on Hebrews 13. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Where does he say? And you will always feel my presence with you. You always feel it. You may not feel it. You may feel like, Ugh, God is the farthest thing from me right now if I, if I follow what I feel. Who told you that you would always feel his presence? Who told you that? Sometimes the things that are most consistent in life, you don't feel at all. You don't recognize them at all. So did you wake up? The, how many of you are Canadians in this room? Your citizenship is Canadian. So did you wake up this morning and say, well, I just feel like a Canadian. It didn't change the fact that you're a Canadian. Well, you know, if you, go to a, if you go to a restaurant and the temperature in the restaurant is perfect, do you say, wow, I just feel this perfect temperature in this restaurant? No, you don't even notice it because the temperature is perfect. It's unnoticeable, but it's still real. Whether or not you feel it is a secondary issue, is it not? So why in the world would we do this with God? Well, God, I just got to feel your presence. You know, I want to raise my hands and worship you in the song service like this other dude over here, or this other girl over here, and she raises her hands and sings, and the tears flow down her face, and I just want to feel God like this person, but I don't feel nothing. <laughs> I guess maybe it's not real, or maybe I'm not a Christian. No, it's just your feelings. Just your feelings it doesn't change God's existence, doesn't change his reality. How about guilt God? Guilt God. Well, God just makes me feel guilty all the time. Can't have any fun in life. Can't enjoy life. God hates fun. God hates pleasure. And uh, God hates sex in particular. Sorry, young people, I did say that. Your parents can explain to you what it is, okay? He, he, God, God must hate that too because, you know. Where did, where did we get this idea? Uh, well, I could whip up a little sermon, you know, without holiness, no one will please the Lord. So holiness is you're in sackcloth and ashes all day and you're, you know, you're, you're a real nun, not an N-O-N-E, you're an N-U-N. You're, that, that's holiness and you're, you kind of live a miserable life and, you know, you've got to take vows or something and, you, you know, you can't, can't have anything in life and you've got to be poor and destitute and, that, you know, and, and miserable too and that's when you're closer to God. And the more guilt you feel, the guiltier you feel, the more holier you must be because God hates fun. God hates pleasure. God hates all of these things. Where did we get this idea? And where did we get the idea that holiness is such an unfun thing? Where did we create these things from? The, 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 God is not anti-fun. God is anti-sin. God is not anti-pleasure. He's anti-sin. So distinguish between the two. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. There's something wrong with enjoying sin. And, and, you know, you have to say, okay, now when I become a Christian, sin is no longer something I enjoy, but serving God is something that I enjoy. And yes, serving God can be fun. 
It can be enjoyable, and yes, it can be a pleasurable thing to love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But some people feel like, well, the more guilt I feel, the closer I must get to God. Wow. You try holding on to a God like that all your life, walking around feeling guilty all the time. How does it relate to Easter? Hmm. Well, uh, you know, Jesus, he, he seemed to have people gravitate to him because they were set free from their guilt and set free from their shame and from their sin. Remember the woman who they caught who in the act of adultery and they bring the woman out and they put her in front of Jesus and they say, huh, what's the law of Moses say? This person, you have to, the death penalty is what the law of Moses says for this person. What do you say? And Jesus writes something in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. And he says, well, whoever's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Nobody does. And he looks at the woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And the woman, woman was set free from her guilt. She didn't walk around saying, well, I got to feel guilty the rest of my life and that'll make me godly. <laughs> Whoever told you that feeling guilty all the time is what makes you godly? Not necessarily. Oh, and by the way, the boyfriend, girlfriend, God, I don't think I said it. You know, I'll go back there. The boyfriend, girlfriend, God. Remember, remember what Jesus said on the cross talking about Easter? My God, my God, why have you didn't feel the presence of God at all, did he? Didn't feel it at all. Um, because God's not your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Um, how about this one? And we're almost done. The, the, the don't think, don't ask God. So the more you think, the less faith you'll have. <laughs> Thought, thinking is the opposite of faith. Knowledge brings me away from God not closer. And I could whip up a really nice sermon. First Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. First oh, Corinthians 3, the, the knowledge of this world is foolishness to God. Stop thinking, stop learning, stop knowing. God is unknowable. He's in the unknowable. The more you know, the less faith you have. Being an intellectual is the opposite of faith. Who told you this? Didn't Jesus say, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? How are you supposed to love God with all your mind if you don't think? Like, I'm convinced that some Christians, when they get into a church setting and when they get, a, they get a, around other Christians, they have a little zipper on the back of their head there, and they unzip the zipper, they take their brain out, and they put their brain outside in the, in the lobby, and then they come in the church meeting and they just sort of stop thinking. Think, Christian person, think. R.C. Sproul used to say it, think. What's wrong with thinking? Did not the apostle Paul think? Did you ever read Paul's writings in the New Testament? This guy thought a lot, he's a big thinker. Think, learn, observe. How many of you have an iPhone again? Okay, how many of you have any phone at all, even a BlackBerry? So when you learn more and more and more and more about your phone, when you learn about how every part of your phone works, you know how the 
the, the keyboard or the touch screen works. You learn how the Wi-Fi works. You learn how the Bluetooth works. You learn how the near field communication <laughs> works. You learn all the electronic pieces and parts and you just learned everything about your phone. Everything. You've learned it all. You've learned the transistors, the electronics, how all this stuff works. Does that mean the phone has no creator? Have you nullified the existence of the creator of the phone by learning all about it? No. You know what you've done? You've learned more about the creator of the phone. You've said, wow, whoever created the phone, pretty intelligent. That's pretty intelligent. That's, that's very well put together, you know, even if it's a Blackberry. It's very, very well put together. Uh, you're not, you don't make God go away the more that you learn and the more that you think. You don't nullify him and get rid of his existence because you learn. But some Christians, they say, oh, don't think. Don't think. Don't ask questions. Oh, and by the way, never doubt. Never, never. And never tell another Christian in the church that you doubt. Never, never. Because you'll be viewed as a, wow, that, that, that is so non-Bible. One of, the, one of the coolest guys in the New Testament is Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, I call him Empirical Scientist Thomas because Thomas says, hey, you're talking about Jesus being risen from the dead? Well, unless I see the scars in his hands, I'm not believing nothing. The proof is in the pudding. So, you know, I'm an empirical scientist. Show me the proof. What does Jesus do? He stands in front of Thomas. Hey, Thomas, eh, 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 put your finger in here. Thomas, put your finger in here. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a ghost. I'm the real thing. And Thomas makes one of the boldest declarations in the New Testament. He calls Jesus God, my Lord and my God, acknowledging his deity. And we call him Doubting Thomas. Nothing wrong with that kind of questioning and that kind of, hey, God, I want to learn more about you. I want to learn more about everything. Being an intellectual and learning stuff and thinking is not anti-Christian. The don't ask, don't think God isn't real. He wants you to ask. He wants you to think because if you stop thinking, then someone who is thinking will nullify your God's existence. Uh, some atheist will nullify your God's existence, believe me, because you don't have a leg to stand on because you've never thought about any of this stuff. And the final, uh, the final uh, false God we'll look at today, and we'll finish with this today, is the anti-science God, close relative of the non-thinking God. Oh, and by the way, I, I didn't mention it, but I put my phone number on the screen. Um, if you have questions uh, about the content over the next few weeks, please uh, just send me a text. And uh, those of you watching on Facebook, message me. You can text me as well because you're seeing these slides as well. Um, and a question did come in last week. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good question um, and a question that is often asked, especially by young people. Uh, I'll pull it up in a second. But the, 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 the anti-science God, and this is basically you cannot believe in God and believe in science. The two are in constant opposition with one another, and you cannot do that. Science has, has proven that God does not exist, and, you know, I've even heard Christians try and tell their, their, their kids that there's no dinosaurs. Oh, there were no dinosaurs. That's not true. Like, please do not say that to your children, <laughs> okay? Dinosaurs were very real. 
and I love the Jurassic Park movies, okay? True history, Jurassic Park. I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Okay, don't say that, please do not say that dinosaurs weren't real. If you say anything to your children, don't say that. Please don't say that because the moment that they visit a museum, they're going to say, uh, what do I do with this big T-Rex in front of me? Do I say it didn't exist? Uh, got bone, fossil, uh, science? So what, what do we do with this? And the, the, the question came in last week, um, and it was phrased something like this. Um, uh, atheists uh, will say to, to Christians, you know, you Christians, you believe that the world is 7,000 years old uh, because that's what your, your Bible teaches. And, you know, the earth is four and a half billion years old and the cosmos is 14 and a half billion years old. And yet the Bible seems to teach it 6,000 years old, 7,000 years old. Like, uh, what do you do with that problem? It's an amazing question. Who told you that to be a Christian, you have to believe the earth is 6,000 years old? Like, who told you that? Uh, where do you see a definitive statement in the Bible, thus saith the Lord, the earth is 6,000 years old? I know, and I know what you're thinking. You're saying, oh, you're, comp you're compromising, pastor. I know what you're doing. Listen, the Bible says that God created the world in six days those six days are 24-hour days. What you're doing, pastor, is you're compromising. Really? Okay, there are about 15 different views of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And for that matter, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11 is a huge source of problems for people who think about things like science and how do I interpret this and how did Jesus interpret this? What would he have thought of it? This is a huge, complex problem. Who told you that to be a Christian, you have to believe one singularity thing like this where the earth was created in six 24-hour days and it's 10,000 years old? Who told you that this is necessary for you to be a Christian or else? Now, I need to tell you, like just as a caveat, I am a young earth creationist. I do believe that. But I recognize the huge problems from a scientific perspective of believing that the earth is 10,000 years old. Do you know what kind of problems that causes? When you look at cosmology, when you look at the speed of light, when you look at the geologic column, when you look at radiometric dating, do you know how much problems it causes if you're gonna be crazy enough to believe that the world is 10,000 years old? It's, it's really tough. You say, well, too bad, pastor. That's what it says. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Forget about this science. You know, I could whip up a really good sermon from 2 Timothy, you know, have nothing to do with godly myths or 1 Timothy 6 and 20. Stay away from the ideas of what is falsely called science and falsely called knowledge and just be, I could whip up a really good science and say, no, don't listen to any of it. Stay away from it. The earth is not four and a half billion years old. It's 10,000 year old, years old. Thus says Pastor Joe. Uh, I, I just need to, I just need to inform you that, that every single view, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll even dare to open it, every single view of the age of the earth and creation, because this is really the major, major problem, uh, especially for young people when they actually start to think about science. This is like the thing. 
can, can I just tell you that every single of you, and there's about 15 of them that are acceptable in the whole pale of orthodoxy of Christianity. They vary, they go all over the place. Um, in every single of you, there's speculation involved. Every single of you. Even if you hold to the strictest, you know, I hold to this, the 24-hour view, but I rec- the reason why I do that, if I can just be honest with you, is because I'm a supernaturalist. I believe in the supernatural like crazy. So I believe that God did it. He did it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. I don't even believe he needed six days. I'm just, and you say, that's not evidence. I know, <laughs> but that's why I believe it. Do you know the speculation that's necessary with any of these views? Here, look, look. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When was that? I don't know. It doesn't say. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hover, hovering over the waters. What waters? When were they created? I don't know. It doesn't say. I have to speculate and say when it was. I have to Put something in the verse and say, well, it must have been created in verse 1, I guess. I mean, he must have created it, duh. Yeah, but I'm speculating. And I can read the whole account and I can speculate and I can ask all these questions because the point of the account is not, ha, 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 to be a Christian, you got to believe the world is 6,000 years old. No, the point of the account is God's a creator. God's a creator. And you, you may look at it in, like I said, there's about 15 different views on this thing. It's very complex. It's a big ball of yarn. Who told you that to study this and to learn this is anti, anti-God? Who told you that learning about science is anti-God? It is the opposite. The more you learn about science, the more you learn about God. Because the founders of modern science, they saw, hey, there is a, an apparent predictability in the way things work. It seems like we can see patterns and it seems like we can develop theories and ideas based on these patterns. Maybe that's because there's a creator who set these systems in motion. Oh, and maybe the more we learn about these systems and the more we learn about all these things and study all these things, maybe the more we will learn about the creator. You know, people who, who, who study things like uh, molecular biology, uh, <laughs> let me tell you, they have a healthy awe and a healthy respect for what they see under those microscopes. Maybe some of them are atheists, yes, but they're not... They're not uh, quick to do so because the more that they see the more they scratch their head and they say wow that is a quite a that's quite a thing in that cell that's quite a machine in there how'd that get there you know and they and they wrestle with all these questions just like you and me the point is who told you that to study science is to say you know i i, I either have god in the bible or i have science but i can never put the two together. That is a false idea. And yes, 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 you can believe that the cosmos is 14 and a half billion years old and be a born again, spirit-filled, vibrant believer. And you can do the same thing if you believe it's 6,000 years old. That is an issue that you can wrestle with for the rest of your life and divide, uh, uh, debate on all you want. Just don't divide on it. If you ask the people in the New Testament, you know, about these debates about science They'd look at you and they'd say, you people are from Mars. What we know is Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for our sins to set us free from our sins and to open the way for eternal life. That's good enough for us. 
You people, you think you're so smart and so sophisticated, all you want to do is argue about the age of the earth. They would rather argue about Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Just saying, just saying. You don't have to throw science out the door to be a Christian, not at all. And some of the best, some of the most respected are people of faith. Do they always believe that it's 6,000 years old? No, that's, that's okay. And you, and you should learn about some of these people. Those of you who have a, right now media, you, you're plugged into that through, through the email that I sent you, look around on there. You'll see all these views represented from all these different brilliant people, all of them Christians, all of them saved, all of them on their way to heaven. So don't believe in these false gods because these false gods, wow, the moment you run into something that's gonna challenge, you won't have a, a, a leg to stand on, the protective bubble God, the on-demand God, the boyfriend, girlfriend God, the guilt God, the don't ask, don't, don't ask, don't think. And, and never, never believe in science, God. <laughs> these gods, these gods will never get you anywhere. Next week, we're going to get even deeper into this, and we're going to talk about the Bible says, are you sure? Are you sure? You sure you know where the Bible came from? You know, some people, they say, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And don't read anything but the King James Version. Are you, you sure? <laughs> I may challenge some of your suppositions about all these things next week. After all, it is the New Testament documents themselves, and in particular, the gospel record, which tells us of Jesus and his resurrection. They better be right, because they're the only real source, the closest source that we have. They better be right. Do you know if they are? Are you sure? We'll take a look at that next week. I'd like